This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. This is uh, Robert uh, Stark. I'm joined here with uh, Jack from the Perfume Nationalist uh, podcast. Jack, it's great finally talking to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And I'm also joined here with uh, Matt. Yep, great to co-host. Are y'all a couple? <laughs> sort of, sort of. Pictures of each other. Yeah, we travel around and we do photo blogs and documentaries wherever we travel. I mistaken as a couple. Yeah, especially when we were in, yeah, when we were in WeHo when filming for Supply. Yeah, yeah, we've been, we've done stuff in West Hollywood, so that that probably comes across a certain way. I should say right off the bat that actually neither, both of us, I would say, are, uh, you know, maybe a little bit queer on some level, but neither of us are really gay. (laughs) No shit. Since we're going to talk about perfume later on, the only bottle of cologne I have is uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier Lemal from uh, 2002. I still have it. I got it when I was 16 in England as a birthday present. Well, that's the gayest cologne you could possibly have. It's it's legendary. That defined the smell of gay bars and like public spaces in the 90s. It's a lot weaker now than it used to be, but I bet if your bottle is that old, it's still really strong. Yeah, it's really strong. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, Jack, can you give us some a brief... Uh, bio about yourself and the general concept behind the podcast, The Perfume Nationalist? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm white trash from Central Texas, Austin, Texas. Um, I'm about 32 years old. Uh, I'm a homosexual. I've always been into fragrances, but I really developed fragrance autism probably like 12 years ago due to Luca Turin's Perfumes, The Guide, which is like the foundational Bible of the current online perfume hobby. Um, And I always just wanted to do something that collected all of my disparate anachronistic interests. And I'm a failed academic. I I did, uh, like I completed a bachelor's degree in English and I did about half of a master's degree in English, and then I had to stop because I had to work. Um, but I had planned to do like a thesis on soap operas that encompassed all of my interests, and it never happened. And I've just been working various service industry jobs, worked at a porn store, um, worked at uh, for three years editing cut rate werewolf erotica, and basically an editorial sweatshop. Um, and my brother and I just decided to try to start a podcast and just like recorded basically our first conference call about it. And that's the first episode of the show. And we did it for free for, you know, eight months to nine months before even attempting to monetize it because we were, we just wanted to prove that we were doing it (laughs) for the passion of it, but Basically, what what the show is is I pair a relevant perfume 
uh, throughout history with various media elements. Right now, I always include a movie, but uh, we've done books, we've done video games, do a lot of TV shows, and the combinations are getting even stranger and stranger, and um, the difference here is that we put a lot of effort into our show, whereas I feel like for the past five years, everyone has had this kind of post town attitude of bragging about how shitty their podcast is and how they don't try. And we're like the knots landing of podcasts. We work the 12 hour days. My podcast involves homework. Uh, it involves watching seven hour movies. You name it. Uh, I have to ship perfume through the mail, <laughs> like, all kinds of stuff. It's a very work intensive process, but, uh, People are starting to find out about it now, and it's it's really exciting to just have this big, <laughs> this big like sexual persona, like massive body of sixty episode work to point to. Yeah, I think the work really shows. I, I just started listening to the podcast last week, and I'm trying to catch up on all the episodes. Um, but I, I, you know, you you start a lot of podcasts when you're you know when you're online, you you you, you try a lot of different ones, and and you don't always have high expectations. But I've been really blown away by yours and I think the the hard work really pays off. It's it's quite a impressive cultural product. As far as the nationalist and perfume nationalists go, is it just about the aesthetic? How do your political views uh, relate to that term? I'm basically just a MAGA boomer. Like I'm like people's boomer parents. There's nothing unacceptable, quote in quotes, about me at all. And I get a lot of trouble for naming it the Perfume Nationalist, but it's a band name, and <laughs> people don't quite understand. They're they're so uh, shocked and perplexed by that, uh, yet they'll go to Target and buy a Joy Division shirt, and we all know what Joy Division and New Order were named after, uh, like Nazi sex, sex camps and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I deliberately named it that and front-loaded it with all my, like, based in red-pilled credentials in order to get unusual people to listen and in order to get straight guys to listen. Um, And it worked. I had to do that. And now I have a world drought of a 70s cologne called Yadigan. I have straight men in their 20s, the ones demonized by the media as incels, alt-right, whatever, buying what people would call old lady perfume, aromatics elixir, Magine Noir, Montana, stuff like this. And I was able to do that because I was so extreme at the beginning. And I do believe that there is there are narrative threads throughout the show. Um, I'm going to sound crazy saying this right now because people don't think of podcasts in this way because it's a new genre. But I like tackling massive maximalist works of art like uh, all 325 episodes of Mary Hartman Mary Hartman or all 300 whatever episodes of Knott's Landing or the Marquis de Sade's Justine and Juliet which are like 2500 pages altogether. but I have always viewed the several podcasts that I have liked Come Town and Red Scare as being these kind of interactive online daytime soap operas at their best and people really haven't explored the potential of this but you know i knew the day that it was going to take off was coming because we simply put too much work into it (laughs) and it's simply too weird not for for someone not to find it in the current barren cultural landscape and 
every single criticism that anyone possibly could have of me, I've already answered in the show. <laughs> I'm so far ahead of it. Uh, you know, these people can't even wrap their brains around it. So it's it's really funny this week seeing it kind of explode and people say, well, why is it called the Perfume Nationalist? Well, why are you wearing a Joy Division shirt? Why is Black Sabbath called Black Sabbath? Why is Led Zeppelin called Led Zeppelin? It's like, people are just so incredibly unimaginative and they can't, they can't read art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. At what point did your views start to drift more uh, right-leaning? When did you kind of join like the weird right uh, Twitter? Well, um, I didn't join Twitter until fall 2018 I had been on it like six or seven years earlier and it kind of like deleted my account because I like hated social media so much over the years because I was like on Facebook just surrounded by a jury of 150 people that I knew IRL um which is just awful like that's not how it should be it should be a free creative space uh but my red pilling happened with Camille Paglia, um, which I, I started reading her. I discovered her through the commentary track on the DVD of Basic Instinct. Um, <laughs> and I picked up Sexual Persona and Sex Lies and Videotape and Vamps and Tramps and proceeded to read them all. And I also, and this was an annoying stunt, I purchased copies of all three of those for every one of my family members for Christmas that year. Um, because I had finally, like, I finally, like, recognized myself. I had always had this, like, discomfort with the, like, boring, cheesy, like, AP history class Democrat liberals in high school. And they always, in the 2000s, like, tried to kind of co-opt me uh, because being just a regular male gay was sufficiently exotic for Democrats to be interested in you then. They always kind of tried to tell me, oh, you're actually a liberal. Um, Well, like, I am. I'm... I'm... I, I, there's no one word that will describe what I am. Like my only consistent political value is that I'm totally and completely against censorship. But uh, you know, I know that a lot of people were like red pilled by Moldbug um, in the late 2000s and his blog, and I was largely unaware of him. I just a couple of days ago um, did the Contbot's pseudo doxology podcast with Moldbug, and it was really excellent. Uh, it was like a battle of the minds there. Um, but I was, like, unaware of all of this going on um, on Twitter and online until, really, Trump. And 2016, I was, like, disavowed by everyone I knew, basically for criticizing the obvious excesses of 2010's liberalism, censorious liberalism. And I was sort of forced to go online to find friends. And what do you know, on the most demonized part of the internet, people were the most open and understanding to my very strange vision of gay vision of perfume and soap operas and all of this. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think creating, uh, like, like, a new, a new uh, counterculture, and there's definitely, like, an opening for that because a lot of dissident politics or right-wing politics, whatever you want to call it, is just about politics, but since, like, mainstream culture has become so stagnant and lacking of creativity, I think there is, like, a real uh, opening. Yeah, and I'm no longer even calling myself right-wing or anything because those terms are left behind in the 2010s. They're meaningless. Like, this is old. 
the paradigm has shifted with this pandemic, all of this, and um, I am reappropriating the word queer for myself, which I have, which has been co-opted by uh, boring careerists academics and conformists and the verified blue check media class what i've been doing the whole time is the real queer studies so i'm taking it back um i'm doing what kanye west did with the confederate flag putting it all over his uh his tour merchandise for the Yeezus tour that's what i'm doing with queer studies and new queer cinema and all this it's interesting uh with with paulia um i also uh am a very interested in camille paulia and um with, that was a uh, post college, she was a major influence on my my political and cultural views. Uh, she really gives form to a lot of what uh, to to a lot of things that um, she really kind of gives a voice to a certain queer perspective that you you really don't get anywhere else. But that at the same time is, is so easy to find in art. Um, you know this kind of dissident. Uh, a take on on aesthetics and queer aesthetics that's alternative to anything you get in any of the other critical theorists. Well, Polya is right about everything, and that's one of the final red pills because people are always so uncomfortable dipping their toe in. The the, the red pill is that she's right about everything, but the honestly, the most valuable thing that you can take from her at this particular juncture in history is the total steamroller confidence that she has in herself and her very idiosyncratic vision because people think that it's loud and rude um, and it, it just doesn't play by the rules like she very much has the oratorial style of Trump and it's why even though Trump is just a in terms of policy is just a standard neoliberal president doing the same things that Obama did um, the Democrat establishment just depicts him as Satan. It's all a matter of style and confidence. And men are supposed to be obsequious and meek now. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I guess one of my uh, good aspects or whatever is that I have never had any kind of stage fright. And I never feel that I'm wrong because I always tell the truth, which is what got me in trouble in, <laughs> throughout the 2010s. Um but, yeah, Polya's oratorial style and the, like, weird riffs and monologuing, and also Rush Limbaugh, who's a friend of Polya and plugs her a lot, um, those are big inspirations. Uh, there's this sort of value, I don't want to use the terms uh, right-wing, they're so Westdale, but basically the aspirational uh, upward orientation excellence uh, versus the pull downward beauty equality. Yeah. Versus belief in hierarchy and excellence versus uh, equality, and I think it's interesting to make that point about about aesthetics. Uh, you could tie this in with Paglia, a reader of culture between the lines, uh, cultural expressions that are surprisingly unconscious expressions of a more aspirational instinct, and you could maybe yeah. make the case of like the perfume ads for the '80s, mall architecture, as uh, being something aspirational of what the current culture is bereft of. Yeah, that's what I was going to jump in with. Um, you mentioned earlier that you kind of come from an academic background. I actually do as well. Uh, I never pursued a master's, though I haven't ruled out the idea. I mean, I don't think that academia is in a special fertile ground right now for any kind of creativity, so I probably won't. But I was an English major in college, and I was heavily into a lot of the critical theory stuff. 
Um, just I thought it was kind of interesting to, you know, read stuff between the lines and to do some meaning from cultural products. And in college, that was all about people like Derrida and the Frankfurt School. But post-college is when I got into Paulia, and I think Paulia is kind of the antidote to all those people. She takes what's interesting about um, critical theorists, which is, you know, being able to deduce meaning from cultural products. But instead of giving a, you know, a left-wing, very sterile left-wing response to culture, she is able to find something which, by a sort of Bronze Age pervert definition, we'd call right-wing. Although I agree with you, we could probably leave these terms behind. But what I what I find in Polly is that she's able to look at everything from, you know, the bust of Nefertiti to very much more quotidian cultural products from the 80s, um, the way you do with perfume ads, and is able to kind of find these aspirational, um, sort of spiritually haunted uh, meanings in them, which rather than the Marxist bullshit of other critical theorists um, is actually something very aspirational and inspirational. And you could even find that in a figure like Trump. You might not like Trump, but he still represents some core um, spiritual truth about masculinity and about, you know, greatness. Absolutely. And that's why I was so enchanted with Trump from the moment he announced that he was running in May 2015 is because I was exhausted with excessive liberalism and censorship and political correctness as much as everyone was at that time. And here comes this soap opera villain from the 80s, uh, J.R. Ewing, who turns out to actually be a good, he's more Bobby than J.R. because he's good. Um, But yeah, just summoned as if by my own mind, like a guardian force in a Final Fantasy game, um, and just just casting this like wave of flames over everyone I couldn't stand who had been telling me to shut up and be quiet. And I loved it from the very start. Um, I saw it as performance art. I don't care about politics. I don't care about policy. Um, the only presidents that I have a particular passion for are Trump, Reagan, and Nixon because of their aesthetics and how, you know, the, the wonderful uh, controversial characters they are. What I was saying earlier about, like, an aspirational uh, aesthetic, I don't know if it's sometimes if you talk about it too explicitly, you ruin it. Sometimes it just has to kind of evolve organically. Yeah, I mean, that is what is needed. It's needed to to effectively sell the product. And you're absolutely right that um, advertising before the 2010s, it was often, like, high art. Like, the Calvin Klein ads from the late 80s all the way through the late 90s were totally transgressive art, and it was all intentional. It was all being done for commerce. It was all being done to create buzz, but the difference in advertising then and advertising now is that they were selling you a lifestyle that was desirable at that point. They were selling you an image that is obviously impossible to attain. You know, the the Marlboro Man, uh, the, like, Newport the yacht scenes of like yuppies and everything, um, everything, all the sex depicted in perfume ads. This is all impossible to obtain, but it makes the feeling of engaging with the product really rewarding. Whereas now in the 2010s, uh, advertisers try to shame you into buying their products with Democrat talking points, which is totally yeah. reprehensible. 
they try to shame you or or the ad is all about comforting you for being like everyone else essentially and it's almost it almost feels like a banal Ayn Randian point to make but I th- I've been thinking about this since listening to your podcast and while trying to make the outline for this show um, I think there really is something to that idea that at some point and people always point to the 80s as the as the cultural moment I think for good reason it was a kind of um, high point for a certain aspirational, uh, message and aspirational culture in the West and in the United States. And you can see it in things like perfume ads in the Reagan presidency. Uh, on this show, we're really autistic about uh, 80s, 80s malls and architecture and, and um, as well as neon and vaporwave. It's just this, this moment of well, the I, 80s. Have you listened? Okay, we recorded, my brother and I recorded a four and a half hour experimental episode where we go in the Galleria Mall in Houston and talk to perfume sales ladies and oh yeah you sent thing. that to me i did listen it's called to... the mall it's, yeah i did yeah in the future that's going to be studied by uh you know terry gross npr's head in a jar or whatever but, you know it'll be in the national registry of podcasts but right now it's a bit much for people to appreciate but we wanted to make big messages about our love for malls because it was just uh, audio visual i didn't get to see it but the mall in Houston you are at, is there still, is it like a newer mall, or does it have a kind of remnant of the 80s aesthetic? Um, it's, it's a neither here nor there. It's a really upscale, beautiful, huge mall. Um, I believe it's from the 90s, but the point is there's tons of good perfume. It's massive, it's beautiful, it's clean, it has real stores, it's not in any way dying, so that alone makes it really unusual. And um, the other best mall in Texas is North Park in Dallas, which is like a, the 60s art mall. It's all like white brick. It was immortalized in the Talking Heads movie True Stories, and it still looks Oh, exactly yeah, like- you should uh, listen to the show, I, the show I did on, talk, on True Stories uh, several years ago. Oh, yeah. No, the, 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 what North Park shows you is just how amazing public spaces and spaces of commerce can look if um, things are maintained and preserved in the period, the original period in which they were built. And you never see that. You only see this, like, neoliberal renovations, which, you know, basically erased all of American history throughout the 2010s and continues to, where everything is raised to the ground. All the McDonald's, all of it is raised to the ground and these, like, clapboard gray and lime green neoliberal millennial husks are put up because yeah. they can't mention family. Like, McDonald's specifically can't uh, advertise to children or make people feel bad about not having families because it used to be this very warm brown and red environment, and it was, a, like, yeah. a special special occasion fantasy land for kids. Now it's a sad, sad place um, that's just a great clapboard shack. I haven't been to McDonald's in a while, um, but that sounds horribly, horribly depressing. Every I get what you're saying with the, about neoliberal architecture, the kind of neoliberal aesthetic. It's all kind of grimly functional. It's uh, minimalistic. Like you see a lot of these different examples, like the dock we did at Westside Pavilion in the original Jared Day in the '80s versus the the plan for the new Google Office Park, uh, Horton <clears throat> Plaza, which has become a also by Jared Day, which has become a tech campus. Uh, it's minimalistic, but at least, I mean, mid-century, not- mid-century minimalism, I mean, that architecture, a lot of it does have value, but the current neoliberal, I don't know if there's even, if there's an official architectural term, but I just call it uh, mm. neo- neoliberal architecture, 
and uh, you see it with a lot of these new uh, mall renovations. Yeah, and it's suburban. Of any sense in uh, like common aspiration or common cultural vision, it's kind of it's 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 neoliberal. It's it's all about the privatization and um, you know just these spaces. The Google headquarters that's replacing the West Side Pavilion in L.A., for example, about just a, you know a space for those Google workers, but. Whereas the West Side Pavilion was a space that anyone could go and enjoy. And I think that this kind of highlights this great change in American life that's happened. And this is a very political point as well as an aesthetic point. Uh, this great change in American life that's happened without anyone really calling attention to it uh, in the 80s and the 90s and that there's now a backlash against is this shift from uh, you know a more collective cultural vision to um to something that is basically managed decline and uh you know internationalist that's basically how i describe it how like sure back in the 80s there were a lot of people were saying this architecture is really tacky it's gaudy and it represents like crass consumerism i'm sure you i'm sure you had that and i've actually heard older people uh say that but to me what it represents to me like something like a lot of these postmodern projects, like the like John C. Portman's uh, architecture, the Embarcadero Center, and a lot of these different 80s mall, there is like an a- aspirational quality, uh, optimism for a better future. And I think the best way to describe the political ideology behind like the, the aesthetics of current malls and, and office parks is just managing, managing the decline is the best way to put it. Well, it's also about concealing wealth. It's also the all, 2010s neoliberal minimalism, which is totally different from minimalism in its original state. And I'm not even talking about like IKEA Swedish design type stuff, Scandinavian design type stuff, because I like that. I like IKEA. I like the planting of IKEAs in Texas, and I like going in there and eating in the little cafeteria, and I like my white Billy bookcases. The problem is what you do with it. You have to fill it up with an actual library. Um, so I'm not saying like all minimalism is bad. I'm reacting specifically against 2010s minimalism, which is all about concealing wealth, concealing where power actually lies. Uh, like the eighties are frowned upon so much by unimaginative people because they're embarrassed by the way that people flaunted their wealth, wealth and the open, admiration of wealth on shows like Dynasty and Dallas. Um, and, you know, and it was all about caviar, champagne, diamonds, fur, everything. It was all up front. And for the last, I guess, 20 years, um, wealthy people and the elites have been doing this charade of bohemianism. They, they have this, like, you know, frazzled, kind of, like, shitty, like, kind of wavy, uh, grown-out root filled hair they never wear makeup as a statement everything everything is that sad 2010s uh fake bohemian and like some the 1960s at the 10th removed type stuff and you know down to um like uh you know i i'm not a huge admirer of like formality in the way i dress or anything like i i buy all my clothes from tractor supply company um but the like Mark Zuckerberg kind of like uh, the hoodie and the like I'm just one of you type thing like that's so much more sinister and telling about the wealthy than you know when it was just this aspirational thing on television. The people yeah, made of fun. course, the actual wealth inequality has gotten so much worse. 
uh, since the 80s, that there's something especially pernicious about that. I think that's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the 2010s, what I call neoliberal minimalism, because I don't know what the word neoliberal actually means. I just connected it in my head to what they were doing to McDonald's. And uh, it, it's it's all gray. It's all lime green. It's all about making public spaces scentless and ensuring that everyone is reduced and beaten down to the same level. And this is part of why I love loud perfume so much, because um, with the ban on public smoking and uh, the increase in identities based passive-aggressively around performative allergies from wealthy white women, you know, everything is about, like, these sort of largely made up imminent threats to your health that only affect the wealthy. And this is all, the development of this is all documented in Todd Haynes safe, which is my Mm -hmm. favorite movie ever. Um, But uh, sense are people will tolerate any kind of ambient odor with total indifference. Okay. But if someone is actually putting it out into the air, choosing to, um, or making a statement with an odor, uh, with a sense, then they view it as too much. They view it as rude. It's like that that uh, Trumpian confidence. And I want to bring that back because people have had this ridiculous anti-scent attitude, this Puritan anti-scent attitude for the last 30 years. And it's time for it to be over. There's a fucking pandemic. Everybody's wearing masks. Like, a, the scent-free attitude needs to go. Oh, well, I was listening to this curious podcast on countercurrents and talks about the kind of religious spark with nostalgia. So the, the humans have this longing to be united with the divinity. And obviously a lot of religious types, including a lot of including Christians, will view, and Judaism and Islam as well, will view uh, aesthetics as an idolatry. But I do, th- I do think like a major aspect of this is this human human nature, the longing for the d- divine, and aesthetics, the ethereal quality and aesthetics uh, are what represents that. And when you're in like one of those kind of more neoliberal aesthetics, like you feel, you definitely feel removed from that that quality that's missing in kind of a dream, like maybe like a a subconscious dreamlike level of what you're being separated from. Yeah, and it's. The neoliberal minimalism is all about literally erasing history, uh, you know, and in the 2010s, you saw liberals going about in this very organized way, erasing history. And suddenly, you know, I first noticed my friends who went to college, largely female, uh, I might add, that they developed this antagonism towards the value of free speech, which previously... You know, it was something that everyone believed in. And then very rapidly throughout the 2010s, free speech was in an engineered way successfully connected with an imaginary threat of an underground network of Klansmen and white supremacists. This is enforced by depictions of such fantastical things in Hollywood movies like Green Room, stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so they successfully got people uh, to think that free expression was inherently bad. And with this sort of false religion, uh, this false religion of escalating levels of liberalism and made-up gender identities and new new 
just intersectionalities and all of this like previously like fringe academic stuff okay that's existed for like 30 or 40 years they just started piling it on in the mainstream discourse um and that's what trump was a reaction against and uh i forgot what point i'm coming to with this what was the question again yeah man uh aesthetics as as humans longing to be reunited with the divine um yeah absolutely because i think that everyone has a Everyone's nostalgia period is locked to when they were a baby and a very small child before they were really consciously aware of what was going on in the world. So you just have these echoing sensory impressions in your head. And since I was born in 1987... I yeah, I was born that. in uh, 85, so we're fairly, we're yeah, fairly yeah. close. And then, you know, the, the 80s continued until 1995, basically. Well, I was born in the 80s, was primarily a kid in the 90s, so as far as mall aesthetics go, is I do remember the 80s mall aesthetics from the 90s, and then the year 2000 is when they started uh, renovating them. So just to give one example is uh, Matt and I did that footage of West Side Pavilion in West L.A., and initially it had a very, a very 80s postmodern aesthetic from when it was built in 85, and then in 2000s, the year 2000, they, they they retrofitted it, and they made it a little bit more bland, but then kept some degree of the aesthetics, and then now they're completely destroying it, so, yeah, I have that, like, nostalgia from growing up in the 90s, and then remember, like, when I was entering high school is when they started remodeling the malls, and that's also kind of like kind of coincides with the time in your life when you're also kind of exposed to like the uglier sides of human nature. Mm, yeah, totally. And like, you know, I said like the 80, like every decade overlaps basically the first like half of the next decade. Um, so like the 2010s didn't really take over in full grim force until like 2014. Before that, it was still very much the the comparatively free spirit of the 2000s. But, like, even when I was in middle school and high school, like, there were still, like, these 80s working ladies wearing, like, shoulder pads and stuff. Like, you know, in in Texas, like, with regular people, trends stick around uh, much longer. So, yeah, I had, like, a teacher with, like, you know, a totally 80s perm and, like, hot pink shoulder pad blazer, and it seemed really funny in the early 2000s. And now I'm like, that's really cool. <laughs> I, I was born in 94, but even I kind of remember, you know, just, just little hints and images from when I was very young of just seeing things that I would now associate with, with the 80s. These things do linger to some extent. It takes a while for them to fully dissipate. Well, once you start learning to do Proustian time warps with perfume and you get a handle on entering different eras, through that sense, you can really go back to the 80s. And that's what fascinated me about it immediately when I, like, was first reading about this stuff. And then I started going into, like, Coles and uh, Dillard's and everything and, like, spraying Giorgio. And it just, like, this, these vivid Technicolor childhood memories came back of ladies at church wearing blazers with shoulder pads and just towering over me. And it was, like, the, and lots of makeup, lots of uh, war paint style blush everything but yeah the the ambient smell of the 80s was just this like smog of Giorgio Beverly Hills and cigarettes and so that can really evoke a like a warm spiritual wonderful childlike feeling 
compounded with that I'm a Southern Baptist, um, and I all of my early church memories are mixed up with those scents because everybody still wore all this Amarish, Giorgio, um, all of these different uh, late 80s and early 90s perfumes, opium to church. So it literally worked as the kind of incense of the sacred space. It's far less common today to like smell uh, perfume in public, but one place is like when you go to a Vegas casino in Las Vegas, like every every casino they pipe in perfume. They do that intentionally because it, it gets people, the good smell gets people to linger and so they gamble. It's like the one place where they use oh. the smell to like create the aesthetic. In the You're really going to get me started now because Las Vegas is my favorite city in the world. Um, and it's in large part because it's this last frontier of scented and opulent and excessive public spaces. And Caesar's palace is the most impressive looking place I've ever been to. Like forget, you know, the seven wonders of the world. Like (laughs) those casinos are so amazing. And it, you know, it's one big mall. It's just pretty much has everything. The only thing Caesar's palace is missing is like an authentic Roman bathhouse. Oh yeah, but like it's it's weirdly you know since like sex is so public sex is so commodified there, uh, like the gay bars are very like stiff and non non sexual. They're still a lot of fun, but since they're all um, like so tightly controlled by the gambling commission or whatever, like you can get kicked out of them for like kissing a guy or what you know, which which like I don't even largely care about because i just want to marvel at the, the this excess of food and cigarettes and perfume and everything but you're totally right about the different uh air fresheners that they pump in to each casino and the luxor which is the pyramid one uh which is a really sinister space that i really you know like the the perfume fascist suicide bunker should be under the luxor maybe um but the luxor i remember distinctly having like an egyptian musk type uh fragrance pumped in there were some really bad ones too there's some that smelled like um powdered orange laundry detergent um but caesar's palace had kind of like a white floral type gardenia smell and my goal when i went to caesar's palace was to purchase the 80s caesar's palace perfume actually at caesar's palace and um i i managed to in the little gift shop and i was really happy about it it's now a, a treasure Hmm. Jack, do you have an affinity for these different like cultural icons, like pop stars of the '80s, like Madonna and Michael Jackson, and like the symbolism behind them from the perspective of your show? And how would you contrast them with uh, today's culture? Well, this is uh, this goes back to how culturally rich the '80s were in every way. Because you know, it's funny that the like the blind Gen Xers were calling this like crass materialism um, in this very corny way and like grunge was a reaction against this the 90s were a reaction against this but like you could tune into MTV or just go in a gas station or whatever and Madonna's like a virgin and Frankie goes to Hollywood's relax both x-rated pornographic masterpieces of pop music they were just pumping out of every store everywhere um because music was just so good and madonna along with uh black sabbath and judas priest is like one of my biggest inspirations my favorite musical artists um and 
part of that is the fact that Madonna is one of the few stars that actually did it herself, that actually came from nothing, that was actually just Michigan white trash. You, you know, you find out that literally everyone is nepotismed into the media cycle because they're someone's son or daughter or because they have money or they have some connection. But Madonna actually was just a weird chick who moved to New York uh, with the intention of being a dancer and just, like, kind of set up shop at Danceteria, uh, hung out with these, like, avant-garde people, was considered kind of a joke by all of them, just dancing to her little tapes uh, on the boombox. And what do you know, Madonna is now, uh, unironically, I think, the most influential woman that has ever lived in history um, in terms of how people view sexuality, how women dress. And she's not a great articulator of her own work. And that, this is a problem that people run into uh, because they, you know, want to take the artist's words seriously. Like Madonna cannot explain what she's doing very well. She fumbles there. And this is where Polya came in as a great articulator of what Madonna was doing and by combining, uh, you know, aesthetics from German expressionist silent film and pornography and a New York bohemian punk street rat style and uh, French high fashion, uh, all combined with the most excellent disco music that anyone could ever imagine and doing this on the biggest scale possible. And if I were to, you know, like pick like a foundational text of perfume nationalism, I would point to Madonna's Like a Prayer album, which was scented with patchouli when it came out. So all of the record stores in 1988 just reeked of patchouli because of that album. And people eternally associate that, which is, you know, it was, with Madonna, it was supposed to uh, evoke church incense. Um, and because of that, I was like making mix CDs in the early 2010s for my friends and like rubbing like lush patchouli perfume on them and stuff. Like <laughs> I, I love the uh, intersection of scented, scented stuff. So that really like was kind of like a 4D troll from Madonna. Well, Madonna, but, it, you know, illustrates the importance of a figure like Paulia so well, because if you hear Madonna talk, she was probably more interesting in the eighties and nineties, but especially if you hear her talk now, she just seems kind of like the worst shit lib. But, you know, you can find all this other stuff in her work, which is much more relevant to something, you know, more vital than, you know, censorious, dull liberalism. Yeah, yeah, people don't know how to read an image, like, anymore. They're so, they take things so literally from what the person making it is saying about it because they don't understand what art is, which is, like, an expression of dark and brutal spiritual truths and right. yeah and and lo and behold all the all you know a lot of the movies that have come out over the past five to ten years in the 2010s and a lot of the music is so so much importance in the media and even by consumers is given by you know what you know what what intersectional points people you know what what inter intersectional identity points the people that make it hit and you know what they say about it in terms of how it's woke and how it's changing norm like so much more weight is given to this crap that people say about their art than the actual art, uh, which is a huge difference between the 2010s and a decade like the 80s. It's um, a terrible way to view things. And, uh, like, it really 
has to change in order for people to find spiritual fulfillment in their lives because they really only know how to watch things because of the brainwashing of the media over the last 10 years. They only know how to watch things based on these made up categories of racism and sexism and how effectively it like inverts stereotypes. And this is absolute nonsense. And this is like why people think I'm so weird when I look at something like Lena Dunham, someone like Lena Dunham, who I have taken more crap for defending the artistic integrity and greatness of Lena Dunham for the last eight (laughs) years than I have about anything else, basically. And it's because people didn't understand, people weren't viewing the work. They were viewing this made-up construction by the media, which originally was a liberal moral panic, by the way. Conservatives didn't care about Lena Dunham until her book came out, and there was this whole equally stupid controversy about what she said in there, and that's... She was popular with liberals for a while, and then for some reason, like, a lot of the woke types turned against her. But she wasn't actually popular with them. That's the myth, okay? Like, I... She, very briefly, okay, after Tiny Furniture, um, there was a moment where she was being rolled out by the media as an interesting new female voice. And that was, like, literally a matter of months. It was before Girls even premiered. By the time Girls premiered, there was a full-scale full moral panic about white privilege, the lack of diversity on the show, um, her Lena Dunham's hipster racism, all of this stuff. And that continued for two or three years before conservatives even knew who Lena Dunham was because it was just this this show on HBO that, like, the media class was watching and talking about relentlessly, with good reason, because it's deliberately very polarizing and it's very pornographic. But uh, she used to be better in interviews, but she's so um, submerged in this, like, Democrat media uh, art world nightmare that she has internalized these criticisms to such a degree that she, like, literally has had this, like, hysterectomy. She's, like, destroying herself from the inside out. All What I always wanted her to do was to simply get offline, unplug, and make new work. Uh, because Girls was great all the way through. And it's, uh, you know, a... My take on it is that it's, like, a really honest and, like, red-pilled view of... Yeah. The sexual I, revolution and it's really I ugly. Agree. I um I didn't realize if we, I didn't realize you were a fan of girls. I, I watched the show for the first time all in one go like last year, and I I'll admit that I that I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And and you know how where where the where the like woke feminism? I was waiting for like the woke feminism to come in, and it, it kind of never did. I think that you could describe it as red pilled. No, a lot no. of the most reasonable characters are male, and you know it does. It definitely doesn't make the sexual revolution look um, it especially good. It's interesting because I remember five years ago when the show was on, like how much everyone on online dissident right would pay lip service to how much they hated the show. But it's not like other a lot of stuff. It's not like a glamorized, uh, sanitized version like a lot of entertainment. And this goes back to you know you were asking me why I named it the Perfume Nationalist, and I said I front-loaded that with all of my extreme, shocking, based in red pill credentials, okay? Uh, I did that all so I could pull one over on these guys and get them to watch Lena Dunham and appreciate her in a new light, which I did, and that's my favorite episode we've ever done. <laughs> the, the Lena Dunham one. Because it worked, and people are people are listening to her in a different, or watching her in a different way now, and um, 
you know, I still haven't gotten credit for it or been acknowledged by her, but I have proof. I The first, like, you know, quote-unquote, like, published article I ever had, Jim Goad published it on Thought Catalog in, like, 2015 or something. And uh, it was a defense of Lena Dunham. <laughs> so I'm on the record as... Uh, having been the prime articulator of Lena Dunham since the beginning. And uh, you're also a really big fan of uh, David Lynch, and uh, he, uh, he captures the aesthetics of a lot of the th- themes we're talking about, like whether it's just kind of 80s in, or 90s in general, or the kind of perfume nationalist aesthetic. Can you comment on what you like about Lynch, and is it primarily... The aesthetic, or is it also the narrative? Like you also have an affinity for soap operas, and that Twin Peaks is basically draws on an inspiration from that. Yeah, Twin Peaks is inspired by Peyton Place, which uh, was the original nighttime soap in the '60s with Mia Farrow and Dorothy Malone, um, and was kind of the original prestige television. Uh, but Lynch synthesizes. Uh, something with Twin Peaks that's so rich uh, that I don't think people even are able to appreciate the full scope of it because he adds this surrealist art aspect to uh, nighttime soap opera. Even with the original show, okay, I always loved it since I was in eighth grade, um, and I never anticipated it coming back in any way. Um, And the fact that he pulled it off where Laura Palmer says in the red room that they'll be back in 25 years and he actually did it and created the most expansive kind of like alternate dimension television programming um possible like that was the greatest television moment of my entire life was when twin peaks the return came out um and nothing like that will ever happen or ever be pulled off ever again and like People, people, a lot of people did not like it, uh, especially women did not like it. But when you see the full scope of what he did, how all of that was planned out, and like there were all of these like synchronicities too. Like that's like when I, I had started watching Knots Landing all the way through, and one character on there, Sid Fairgate, had just died at the end of Knots Landing season three in like 1982, and he miraculously appeared, like 80 years old, in. Twin Peaks The Return as Dougie Jones's boss <laughs> and it just creates Twin Peaks creates this like sort of a uh, kind of like fifth dimension encompassing all soap opera worlds to me um, but yeah Lynch is totally uh, outside of the current moralistic puritanical liberal Hollywood filmmaking yeah, and just as far as the creativity, uh, Matt was telling me he's reading a book by Lynch. That I mean, Lynch has been re- remarkably successful, uh, both as a as a cultural figure and economically in his own right. But just basically how it's so difficult to do anything remarkably creative in Hollywood, just because of the how how things are structured. And this kind of goes back to like the contrast. In architecture, we were talking about how, like, the like 2010s neoliberalism, and it also applies to making film. Yeah, I, the book is uh, Room to Dream, uh, which is Lynch's autobiography, which came out in 2018. And, yeah, um, I've worked in Hollywood to different to different degrees, and to, to read this book about David Lynch's entire career, starting with Eraserhead, or starting with his art career and spanning all the way through Twin Peaks to Return, it's really just mind-blowing 
that he was able he was ever able to to make the films that he did and to do it in in so much his own way and on his own timeline you know you want to talk about twin peaks literally this perfect 25 year jump that it's just uh as you said kind of mind-blowing um that he was able to to pull that off and i i don't think that unfortunately i don't think we'll ever see another david lynch in hollywood no that was his i mean that was designed you can tell as his magnum opus and final statement because it you know i hope it's not but it's a perfect one because it encompasses his entire career um it goes further than all of it uh the the prime inspiration for it that i saw was well there's berlin alexander platz reiner Werner fassbender's uh like 15 hour german television movie that delves into surrealism in a similar way at the end and then there's jacques rivette's uh, 14-hour movie, Out One, uh, which unfurls a minimal thread of a narrative to such a slow and expanded degree that it becomes like taking a drug, and you feel drugged simply from being brainwashed by this movie. And I saw it in the theater all 14 or whatever hours of it one Saturday, and it was my best movie-going experience ever, I just felt, like, absolutely exhilarated. And no, there's not any kind of, like, big payoff at the end or anything, but I think uh, there's a lot of overlap with Jacques Rivette and David Lynch in terms of their maximalist vision and the use of length, and Twin Peaks The Return is uh, the most excessive and out-there one of those because like virtually nothing happens in the first several episodes and he like teases you teases it all out you don't you barely you get this like one glimpse of audrey at the very end he just doesn't give anyone what they want with it and that's like what's so great about it yeah and that's huge because so much and not that there's wrong with there's anything inherently wrong with giving people what they want like that's part of entertainment but also being able to subvert that is so important for artistic integrity and to actually keep people on their toes and critical of what they're watching. I'm rewatching The Return right now. I, you know, I, I'm in possession of the DVDs, and it just kind of felt like the right time during quarantine. And what's really amazing, what's standing out to me so much is these long and this isn't all of Lynch's work, but especially in Twin Peaks, these long scenes that just ask you to be patient, almost ask you to be bored and kind of sit there and you know watch in this ambient way, which is interesting. Well, Lynch also intersects in big ways with the perfume world because he directed a lot of great perfume ads uh, at the height of his mainstream popularity when, in, like, 1990. And we recently did an episode talking about Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart juxtaposed with Lancome's Tresor perfume, which was the which had an ad directed by Lynch, scored by Angelo Badalamenti, um, and... Isabella Rossellini was the face of it. She was the face of Lancome all through the 80s. Um, and so the, he also did great ads for East Saint Laurent Opium. Um, I love that he can cross over into the world of artistic elevated advertising in that way. Uh, we're getting uh, close to the end of the show, but Jack, do you want to give some of your personal uh, perfume uh, recommendations and also... Uh, and it's interesting because you use the word perfume rather than uh, cologne. Yeah, that has a much stronger catch. I, uh, you know, the word cologne, people have this false vision or this false idea that 
perfumes are gendered and like certain notes like tuberose like certain like floral notes will undoubtedly evoke a woman for people like you can't just say perfume is totally gender free and everybody will play along with my vision but like since i'm encouraging the use of perfume as a psychedelic portal instead of something to attract people though that might happen you know incidentally uh I call it all perfume because that essentially like maximizes the gayness of it um, and makes it clear that this liquid does not have genitals and that the, uh, the gendered marketing of it is entirely a construction. Um, and that takes people, uh, that takes people some time to get used to. Um, but like my personal favorite perfumes, um, are Clinique Aromatics Elixir, which was an early experiment in kind of rich hippie aromatherapy that came out in the seventies. And it's a, it's a really bitter tannic rose patchouli perfume, um, that probably evokes kind of hippie art teachers for a lot of people. Um, but it's a miracle that Lancome's or uh, that uh, Clinique still makes it, uh, and I want everyone to buy as much of it up as possible. And then I would say Terry Mugler Angel, which is also uh, a massive troll uh, executed at the highest levels of capitalism because Angel essentially smells like a man's ass, but they sold it as smelling like chocolate and candy to women and it became a uh, huge success and everything imitated it after that and Mugler uh, got a lot of flack in the 80s for having these like kind of like fascistic designs of women looking like uh, like insectoid SS officers and stuff and he didn't put out a perfume until 1992 when a blue star landed called angel that smelled like bo and it's still everywhere it's wonderful it's a shocking addictive thing that everyone should experience and you refill it in these like refill stations that's it's i just want to take like a slurpee cup and put it up to this angel refill station and refill it um and then lancome machine noir uh, which is a late 70s Shebra Oriental that had really dark and sinister, like, satanic packaging, and it smells really scary. It's, like, like very, very sulfuric and dark, and you almost, like, can't imagine a woman smelling like this. Um, but the, the packaging of it was covered in sort of, like, astrological, like, alchemical symbols and stuff. Um, and the ads had all these like eclipsed moons and everything. And, um, it's still in good form. If in a less elaborate bottle, Lancome still makes it. Everybody should order that. I would end on some kind of, uh, final thoughts, just, I guess, on Jack's podcast and what I, you know, the, the good trends I've been seeing on Twitter lately. Um, the other day, I think Logo Daedalus, is that his name? Uh, yeah, yeah. He was in the show. Yeah, he tweeted something. He was on your show, Robert? Yeah, he was. He was on my show, too. He's part of the network. He's part of the network? Yeah, the pseudo-doxological Rosicrucian Knowledge Network. Yeah, whatever. The top bot and I have created. 
that you and Confot, yeah. I've recently kind of come into more knowledge about this network, and I'm pretty... I, I think it is the future of, of the space. Anyway, what Logo Daedalus tweeted was about how, you know, the dissident right, the N- NRX, the all right, whatever you want to call it, uh, was kind of always best when it was a space as opposed to a dogma. Um, and I've been thinking about that a lot lately with your podcast. I think you really hit well on that idea of of this like weird uh, quote-unquote right-wing Twitter as being a space for expression, a space for creativity, free speech, etc., noticing patterns, you know, and just kind of processing them in an honest and open way. Um, And that's nice to see because in a lot of ways, um, there's always this instinct uh, on dissident right Twitter to to make it all about dogma and Mm -hmm. a kind of a dogma to counter the liberal dogma, uh, you know, a censorious, uh, you know, a, a type of censorship to counter the other type of censorship kind of thing. And I have no interest in that at all. But um, what podcasts like yours and also uh, Confots as well do so well is kind of um, capitalize that, on that idea of just kind of an open an open space uh, for um, for expression. I think that really is the future of of this kind of of this kind of thing that we're doing. This, you know, the weird right wing Twitter space. Etc. Yeah, the yeah. more we can lean into that, the, the better. And you, it already is bearing fruits when you see it cross over with things like, like Red Scare, where it's kind of breaking the the Overton window about like who's yeah the kind of like the red the red stuff. brown uh, pink alliance. Like uh, yeah. Jack, you were on the Twink Revolution, and mm-hmm. you are beginning. It's like something that's been talked about a really long time, and but you are beginning to see like some degree of crossover on Twitter, which is that I mean that's a fascinating and and potentially positive trend. Yeah, I think the the uh, demise of Bernie Sanders and the pandemic combines to separate the people with balls from the sad conformists. And um, I always recognized the potential in Red Scare and what they were doing, and people always told me I was crazy. Uh, they were like, no, this is just about anorexic art hoes that like Bernie Sanders. I was like, no, it's not at all. <laughs> like, listen to listen to exactly what they're saying. Like, the early episodes, they're, like, basically choosing a forbidden, like, quote-unquote, alt-right topic for each one of them. And the stuff, and they get away with this under the guise of you know, this these low expectations people have for women with vocal fry, but they have been doing something really bold and transgressive since the beginning. And the fact that Anna got Steve Bannon on. Yeah. <laughs> like, the that music. would have gotten you thrown off of Patreon, like, two years ago. And it's a it's a really positive intermixing of these cultural scenes, and it's creating its own scene. And I've, it feels really good to see it happening, because it, the, the needless polarization of the 2010s needs to come to an end. Oh, yeah, for sure. Since you mentioned uh, Contbot, do you have any thoughts on... The new doc, uh, TFW, no GF? I do. I think it's um, a really valuable document, and it's a really well-done piece of work. And Alex Moyer, the director, is coming on my show to discuss Brian De Palma's body double later this week. Um, And it will be her first public statement since the doc was dropped. And, no, it's it's a very well done subtly crafted work and I, I view it as the, the decline of western civilization of this, genera- this generation because it um, yeah. 
it really gets people thinking about the witch hunt of the last decade and how alien alienated young men were demonized in the most evil way imaginable. You mean the, uh, the decline of Western civilization as in the, uh, the punk the documentary? The Penelope Sears right? punk documentary. Yeah. No, I agree completely. Yeah. Uh, Jack, uh, thank you so much for being on, and everyone check out the Perfume Nationalist podcast. Yeah, subscribe on Patreon. All right, thank you. All right, thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely.